Good morning, St. Barnabas. The reading today is from Daniel, chapter 6, page 621 in the Church Bible. Daniel, chapter 6, starting from verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We'll never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that everyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians and cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went to his house, upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands, in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, O king, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continue, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, 
And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. At the first sight, at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wounds was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of God. Um, White, would you mind just killing the lights up on the stage again, please? Thanks very much indeed. Do just stand up for a second. I think sitting still for too long is a temptation to the sinful nature, and uh, you may well drift off to sleep, so I want you to stand up, turn round, sit down, and then we'll start. Just turn round and just move, move the body. Thank you. Good. Okay, you can sit down. Thank you. And uh, let's, let's have our Bibles open at this um, wonderful passage and ask for the Lord to help us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your many kindnesses to us. And we pray that out of your abundance, you would help us to see into your word this morning, to see things that are precious and timely and helpful strengthening and convicting. And we ask that you would not only help us to see these things, but also to act upon them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a famous story, isn't it? And um, of course, you, you know it well. And over the years, it's been the inspiration for plays and films and paintings by some of the world's most famous artists. What on earth does it really mean? I'm going to ask Seb to put a painting up on the screen there. Uh, this is the interpretation of an artist called Rubens. Uh, he painted it in 1615. And um, I think possibly the first thing an astute 
observer would notice is that it shows Daniel as a muscular young man. Which is very interesting because, of course, the fact is that when this actually happened in Daniel chapter 6, he was over 80 years old. So what on earth was Rubens up to? Um, Well, about 100 years before he painted this, uh, Protestant churches were springing up all over Europe um, in protest against the corrupt practices of the Catholic Church. Here we are 100 years later, and um, the Catholic Church was beginning to reform itself. It was fighting back. And uh, that's what Rubens is trying to show in that picture. The, the vigorous, young, muscular Daniel apparently represents the Catholic Church uh, praying for strength to be rescued from the Protestant lions, and there are ten of them in the painting. Well, I suppose it's an imaginative interpretation, but it's obviously not the message of Daniel chapter 6, and we can turn it off now. Thank you, Seb. So what is Daniel 6 really all about? I think some of us have grown up with the idea that the message is, well, if we pray hard enough, God will save us from the lions in our lives. But of course that gives us a problem, doesn't it? Because it simply isn't true. Uh, Our knowledge of the early church tells us that when the Romans threw the early Christians to the lions, God did not shut their mouths. And today the lions that Christians have to face Well, we heard that, didn't we, in Sylvester's presentation. The lions regularly get their meal. So what some of us learned in Sunday school, though not at St. Barnabas, isn't correct. And yet, God tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. That includes Daniel chapter 6. So we need to do a little bit of fresh thinking if we're going to hear God speaking to us this morning. The clue that began to open this up for me is in verse 20. Please do put your eye on it. Uh, Daniel has spent the night in the lion's den, and uh, King Darius, a pagan king, comes down to the den at the first light of dawn. And in verse 20, we read these words. When King Darius got near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Now, as I've been trying to do some fresh thinking on the chapter during the week, I've discovered that the phrase, the living God, is a very important title in the Old Testament. In almost every occurrence, it's used at times when people are inclined to doubt him, when they're no longer sure that Almighty God really is in control. Uh, Another excellent example of this occurs in 1 Samuel 17. You don't need to turn to it because, again, you know the story very well. It's the famous story of David and Goliath. You remember the context. Uh, The people of Israel are facing the Philistine army, Uh, The Philistines have sent out their giant champion, Goliath, to challenge Israel's finest 
champion warrior. But they're all too frightened. No one will fight him. They're no longer sure that God really is with them. And then Daniel, who at the time is a mere boy, he arrives on the scene and uh, he looks at the giant and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, when David there talks about the living God, he means not just that God is alive rather than dead, he means that God is active and powerful and awesome and almighty. He means that even if David, who's only a boy, takes up the challenge to fight Goliath, it is perfectly within God's power to rescue his people and to destroy his enemies. He is the living God. Can I ask you, is that how you think about God? I think it's very common today, isn't it, for people to think about God as being really no more powerful than Father Christmas. He may be very gentle, he may be very kind, but if he exists, he's totally uninvolved in the world. But that, of course, is not Daniel's God. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, who is our God, is the living God. Well, in Daniel 6, you'll notice that phrase appears twice. It's there in verse 20, and it's repeated again in verse 26. And both times we find it on the lips of a pagan king. And that's telling us, I think, straight away that being the living God means that he has the power to melt the hearts of even the most hardened unbeliever. And the king describes Daniel as the servant of this living God. And I therefore think if we're going to try and get to the real meaning of this chapter, we have to start by asking the question, what does it mean to be a servant of the living God? One of the most helpful Christian books of the last 50 years or so is called Knowing God by Dr. J.I. Packer. Um, If you students don't already have a copy, I do urge you to put your hands on one and read it. At the beginning of the book, Dr. Packer challenges us to consider the difference between knowing God and knowing about God. And what a huge difference there is. A couple of weeks ago, we were thinking, weren't we, about Uh, President uh, Vladimir Zelensky and what a courageous leader he's turning out to be. And of course I can say to you, well I know about President Zelensky, but I can't say that I know him personally. So my knowledge about him doesn't actually change me. My life carries on as it did before. And that's in a sense how it is with God. There are lots of people who know about God. They might even be experts in theology. But it doesn't seem to make any difference to their lives. Their lives are essentially unchanged. But Daniel reminds us that knowing the living God, in the sense of having a personal relationship with him, 
changes you and me in ways we can't possibly anticipate. So, what does it mean to be a servant of the living God? Well, it means that there's a new power within us that wasn't there before, and this power produces three totally new experiences in our lives. First, it is the power of a changed life. The power of a changed life. Uh, A few years ago, in the UK, there was a reality television show called Make Me a Christian. And uh, it showed different Christian leaders attempting to bring a group of very unlikely candidates to faith. What was very interesting was the way that they tried to do it. Uh, The candidates were given their own Bible. Uh, They took the Lord's Supper. They received some superficial teaching on moral and ethical issues. And they were taught the importance of good works. And uh, one Christian commentator said at the time, quote, the program says little about relationship and a great deal about regulation. Of course, that's how many people think about the Christian life, isn't it? But it's actually not what the Christian life is about at all. We already know from earlier chapters in Daniel that Daniel himself has a personal relationship with God, and it matters to him. Uh, In chapter 1, you remember, we saw, didn't we, that Daniel would not compromise that relationship by eating food from the king's table. And we also saw that God, in turn, gave Daniel and his friends tremendous wisdom. God changed them. Now, we've got an echo of that here in Daniel chapter 6. Because in verse 3, please look at it, we read, Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. In other words, God gifted Daniel in such a way that the king wanted to promote him into the most senior position in the land. What were those exceptional qualities? Verse 4, verse 4, tells us, doesn't it, that when the other officials became jealous and tried to bring him down... They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. What a word to us. I mean, in our corruption-infested society, Christians ought to stand out, oughtn't they, by not being corrupt. We should be completely trustworthy. And yet we have to ask, don't we, that are professing Christians significantly less corrupt than non-Christians? And we have to say, sadly, that so often the answer is no, they're not. Why is that? Well, friends, it's because they know about God, but their knowledge of him is extremely limited. They have no real concept or experience of the power and authority of God. And that, of course, limits their relationship with him at every level. 
The main problem is they don't trust him and they don't trust his word. Because as far as they can see, being trustworthy just doesn't sound like the way to succeed in life. So they take matters into their own hands and then they wonder why things don't work out as as they had hoped. Now someone hearing that may say, well, okay, Simon, but the truth is my sin is too strong for me. Uh, I've been wrestling with this particular sin habit, whatever it is, for years, and I've made very little progress. Well, if that's you, I want to encourage you to realize that whilst your sin might be too strong for you, it is not too strong for the living God. He's stronger than your temptation, and he's already defeated our greatest enemy. He is the living God. But you see, you've got to trust him and cling to him. You've got to be in a living relationship with him in which you don't just know about him, but in which you ask him to be Lord in every area of your life. You see, think about it. Daniel's exceptional qualities were not simply a happy accident. They were the fruit of his relationship with the Lord. He knew the power of God. In this chapter, he's in constant conversation with him. He's down on his knees three times a day. So, friend, find a Christian to help you. Choose someone that you think does know about the power of God because their lives are different. Ask them to help you to get to know God better and ask them to pray with you. Why would you want to do that? Because our witness matters. You see, one of the messages in the book of Daniel is that God works to reach a lost world through human beings like us. And he does it partly by changing our lives. See, the the changed lives of God's people is the proof of the gospel. So the unbeliever coming into church needs to see that what he's hearing from the pulpit and what he's seeing in the lives of God's people, that those two things belong together, that they aren't a contradiction. So did you notice, very interestingly, that King Darius speaks about the living God in verse 20 before he knows whether Daniel's been rescued from the lions or not. You see, he's basing his assessment on what he already knows about Daniel and his exceptional qualities. So, friends, being a servant of the living God produces the power of a changed life. But secondly, it is the power to face hostility. One of the uncomfortable truths of the Christian life is that hostility is unavoidable. Uh, The night before he died, Jesus said to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. So, for the servant of the living God, hostility is unavoidable. Sometimes it's violent. In fact, 
Interestingly, throughout history, it's often when the gospel has been making the greatest advances that the hostility has been most extreme. Uh, Sadly, we're getting used to hearing about the the persecution of our brothers and sisters, especially in third world countries, as we heard from Sylvester a moment ago. But friends, this is not new. It's always been that way. Uh, Some of you might know something about the great revival that swept through the United Kingdom in the 18th century uh, through the ministries of men like uh, George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers. What you might not know is that whilst thousands, literally thousands of people were getting converted to Christ every week, Christians were regularly being beaten up. So listen to this extract from the journal of Charles Wesley. Uh, The entry is dated July the 22nd, 1743. He was preaching at a church at a place called St. Ives in England. And he says this, quote, I had just named my text when an army of rebels broke in on us. They began in an outrageous manner, threatening to murder the people. They broke the doors, dashed the windows in pieces, tore away the shutters, the benches, the poor box, everything except the stone wall. So this was a serious riot. They swore bitterly, saying, I should not preach there again. Now just imagine that. A normal Sunday service in church, just like we're having here at St. Barnabas. We're not offending anybody. Suddenly the service gets disrupted by violent thugs who want to kill us and terminate the ministry. Sounds absolutely unbelievable, doesn't it? You you couldn't imagine it happening, could you? But that's how it's always been throughout Christian history. Well, here in Daniel 6, the hostility is just as violent, but it's more subtle. So when Daniel's enemies find they're unable to pin a corruption charge on him, what do they do? Well, come with me to verse 5. Verse 5. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So they manipulate the king uh, to issue legislation that essentially requires Daniel to put his faith on hold for 30 days. Notice there's no attempt to put an outright ban on the worship of God. It's just a temporary suspension Uh, a requirement to accept another form of religion. It's only for 30 days. I mean, why make a big deal about it? Of course, that's very up-to-date, isn't it? Very up-to-date. See, in our culture, we're still 
a very long way away, I think, from Christianity actually being outlawed. But we're constantly being urged to accept that there is more than one way to God. You know that perfectly well, don't you? So at work or among your friends, when it becomes known that you're a Christian, sooner or later you will be challenged. Someone will say to you, how can you be so narrow-minded? How can you say that Jesus is the only way to God? Now when that happens, how do you respond? I find it very striking that Daniel didn't go looking for trouble. Verse 10, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. Now notice this, just as he had done before. See, there wasn't any willful provocation by Daniel. He simply carried on doing what he always did. Because, of course, for Daniel, faced with a choice between disobeying the king and being eaten or cutting himself off from the living God in prayer, well, it was no, it was no contest. It was no contest between those two things. Now, do you think about prayer like that? When the lions are prowling around in your world, what happens to your prayer life? I think for many people, that when the pressure is on, the truth is that prayer is one of the first things to go. Isn't that right? But not for Daniel. Three times a day, down on his knees, praying, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Now, are we then to take this simply as an encouragement for you and me to be faithful in prayer? No, I don't think so. If you've been following with us through the series, you may have noticed that this chapter feels very much like a repetition of chapter 3 and the account of the blazing furnace. Now, there are so many points of similarity, we can't mention all of them. Let me just highlight one or two of them for you. In both chapters, God's people are ordered to abandon their faith. In both chapters, jealous colleagues conspire against the people of God. In both chapters, the charge is disloyalty to the state. And having been sentenced to death, in both chapters... God sends a heavenly rescuer into the place of execution. In both chapters, the result is that all people are commanded by the king to worship the living God, and God's people prosper. Now, why so much repetition? Surely, the repetition is there to tell us that in every generation... Wicked people are going to put God's people under pressure. They're going to want us to compromise our faith. And we're being warned in this book to expect it. 
But we're also being told that these same people will ultimately be defeated and bow before the throne of God. See, that's God's design. Friends, persecution is normal. We're living actually in an abnormal time at the moment in South Africa. Persecution is normal. But God uses it to bring unbelievers from darkness into the light. And you see, being a servant of the living God means that you know how things will end. And because you do know that God is going to prevail over all our enemies, you're going to keep in the closest possible contact with God in prayer. And in turn, God gives you the power to face hostility. This idea of God's um, ultimate victory over all of his enemies pops up all over the Old Testament. We've got time for one cross-reference. Keep a finger in Daniel 6 and turn with me, please, to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 and verse uh, 22 Verse 22, God says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And you see there, just pause on that. God is concerned for everybody. People at all the ends of the earth need to turn to him to be saved. Verse 23, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone, our righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. And that's precisely what we find in Daniel, isn't it? So being a servant of the living God produces the power of a changed life. It produces the power to face unjust suffering. And now come back to Daniel 6, because lastly, being a servant of the living God produces the power to face death. If we go back to where we started and ask again, what is God's message for us in this passage? Please will you notice that Daniel is unafraid of death. The passage gives us no room to think otherwise. <clears throat> Once the sentence of death has been passed on him, the only person who says anything is the king in verse uh, 16. Daniel doesn't speak. Now we need to think about this because just as this chapter repeats many of the elements that we saw in the account of the blazing furnace, if we're thoughtful, there should be another echo in the back of our minds. After all, wasn't Jesus also the victim of conspiracy and betrayed by people 
whose position he threatened. Didn't they also, like Daniel's enemies, manipulate higher authorities into executing him? And wasn't Jesus also arrested in his normal place of prayer in Gethsemane? And wasn't he also placed in a sealed tomb with no hope of escape? But of course, unlike Daniel, Jesus really did die. Which of course makes it all the more extraordinary that on the third day he was seen very much alive. And because of that, you see, Christians know that death is not the end. And being a servant of the living God means that whatever happens to us during our days here on planet Earth, our eternal destiny is absolutely secure. Friends, we serve the living God. He's conquered death itself. So can I ask, is this the God that you know? I sincerely hope he is. And if he is, you'll understand why I thought it would be good for us this morning to finish instead of me praying for us to stand and pray Psalm 23 as a response prayer to Daniel chapter 6. Let's stand. Together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Isn't it amazing that we have this Lord um, who has given us the power to face what, what we could not have been able to face on our own. Please stand with us um, as we sing uh, of him who is the Ancient of Days. Mm -hmm. 